Well, hey, let's, let's dive in. Let's do this. Let's get our Bibles out. Let's take them, turn them open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're actually starting a brand new series tonight. I was telling some guys earlier that this is one of those series that I've been trying to do since I got to Westridge. And so uh, three and a half years later, here it is. Um, but this passage of scripture that we're going to talk through for the next several weeks is one of my favorites in all of scripture. And, uh, and I hope that through the next several weeks that the Lord really works in your life and shows you some things that you may not have known before you started coming. So I, I kind of thought we'd kind of launch this series and launch tonight with a question, okay? So let me ask you this. I don't want you to answer it out loud. Just think about what your response to this question would be, all right? Here's the question. Do you believe... Do you believe that Jesus is concerned with your happiness? Okay, let me just ask that again, just so we're all kind of getting it. We all hear the same thing. Do you believe here tonight, and, and you could be the churchiest kid ever, you could be here every week, or maybe this is your first time, um, and, and that's awesome, and we're glad that you're here. So you, you may be in here and have no concept of Jesus. So I, I want you to think about that question for you, okay? Do you believe... When you hear about Jesus and when you hear the stories of Jesus and hear about people that meet like this in Jesus' name, do you believe that Jesus is concerned with your happiness? Like I think tonight if we could pass a microphone around the room and get some different answers from you guys, that we might get a lot of different answers with a lot of different explanations behind them. Um, since we can't do that because it would take forever and I'm the only guy with a microphone uh, in the room. Let me tell you what my answer is to that question. Do I believe that Jesus is concerned with my happiness and with yours? Um, here's my answer. I believe that Jesus is very concerned with my happiness and yours. Like I, I believe that Jesus is so concerned with my joy, with my satisfaction, with my happiness, and I believe he's concerned the same way for yours. And before I explain what I mean by that statement, let me explain what I don't mean, okay? Because I know that there's a danger. If I just throw a question out there, that's a pretty loaded question. We might walk away kind of confused. So let me explain what I don't mean when I say Jesus is concerned with my happiness and yours, okay? Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that Jesus is some kind of Santa Claus type being that sits up in the sky and who exists to give me everything I want and that my happiness is, is dependent on external things or external gifts that he gives, gives me. Like that, that's not what I mean when I say Jesus is concerned with your happiness and mine. I think there's a lot of guys out there and, and even ladies that teach this terrible, terrible um, way of thinking and believing that says, Jesus is concerned with my happiness and it comes through him kind of taking care of my world, right? Like there's this line of thinking that goes, yeah, I believe Jesus is concerned with my happiness and that if I follow him, um, he'll bless me with money. You know, he'll keep me healthy. He'll give me material possessions. Like, it, it's, it's like these people believe that Jesus is concerned with their happiness, but it means that he's going to give them things to make this life so comfortable, so worthwhile, things that you can actually point at and go, dude, I got five grand in my bank account this morning like that. It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. Um, that's not what I mean when I say Jesus, I believe, is concerned with my happiness and yours. I think that that kind of teaching um, runs into a big problem, and it's this book, because this book doesn't teach that. And I think, guys, 
Um, anybody with a brain could probably look around at the world and see the danger in pursuing those kinds of things for happiness, right? I mean, think about it. I, I could run after all these external things to try and find my happiness, and I could run after money. I've actually done that before. It, it worked out kind of well until I ended up being miserable. Um, but you can run after money, and you know what happens when money runs out? Like, you're pretty happy when you got a lot of money, but when the money's not there, you're kind of miserable again. Um, what about this? What about, like, popularity? You can run after popularity, but then here's what's going to happen. Um, some of you are going to graduate high school where you were very popular. You're going to walk onto your college campus where there's like 30,000 kids and no one's going to know your name. And then you're going to go, well, dang, dude. Like, I was kind of happy then, but now, I don't know, this is kind of weird, right? Um, people pursue happiness in relationships, right? Like, you put all your stock in a person, and again, been there, done that, not beating anybody up. I'm raising my hand right along with you. You find this happiness in this person. You chase after this person, this relationship, and you find all of your happiness, all of your joy, all of your satisfaction in that person. And then things get ugly when that person calls you and they go, we, we got to end this thing. You know, and they pull that great line, like, it's not you, it's me, right? That kind of thing. Like, it's not you, I swear it's me. And you're like, well, it doesn't matter because, man, I'm miserable again. Like I was happy, but then that ended, the thing I put all my happiness and found all my joy in. That's gone, so now so is my happiness. Or, or what about this? This one's, this one's pretty awesome. I make fun of people about this one. Um, like you pursue uh, happiness and joy in, in like kind of being healthy. Now I'm a healthy guy. I like to go to the gym. I like to eat right. I like to work out. Um, but again, I, I make fun of those people that are like extreme with it. And you see, if you find all your joy, all your happiness in that, the bad news is, dude, you can eat the cleanest food ever. You can take all the precautions. One day you're going to die. You, you do realize that, right? I mean, it doesn't matter how healthy you eat or how much time you spend in the gym. You're going to die one day. And even before that, if you make it to like 60 or 70 years old, that body you've worked so hard at, it's going to be saggy in some places. Like, that's just how life works. And so, man, you, you put all this happiness in this stock in this thing that we all know is going to end one day. And for some of us, it could end sooner than we might think. Like, I mean, it, just, it happens. And so I, I'm not saying when I talk about Jesus being concerned with our happiness, that I believe, again, Jesus exists to give me all these external things, and I'm supposed to place and find my joy and satisfaction in those. Again, temporary things are very dangerous because temporary things only produce temporary happiness. Temporary things only produce temporary happiness, and when I am putting my happiness, my joy, finding satisfaction in life in temporary things, guess what happens? I'm setting myself up to have temporary and, and, uh, and, and short-lived joy and satisfaction. That's how life works. Guys, here's the thing, and here's what you need to know tonight as we get into this series. The kind of happiness and joy that Jesus offers us, it is not dependent on external things. It's not dependent on circumstances. It's not dependent on who likes us. It's not dependent on how much money we have. Guys, the, the joy and the happiness that Jesus offers every one of us tonight is not dependent on, on temporary gifts. His joy, his happiness is dependent on internal attitudes. 
His happiness and joy that he offers is eternal. It never runs out. And it is solely dependent on our pursuit of him above everything else that this world has to offer us. You see, my prayer for all of us, even as high schoolers, is that over these next several weeks that God would start to shape us into those people that believe that true joy and happiness come from a real relationship with Jesus Christ and that we would experience that eternal and internal happiness that only Jesus can provide to us as people that he loves and people that he cares for. So so here's what I want to do. I'm going to go to the scriptures. And I want us to read these together, and I want us to see what Jesus has to say in Matthew 5. I'll kind of set the scene, okay? By this time in Matthew 5, Jesus has gotten really popular, all right? He's called his first disciples. He started his ministry. Um, He's been teaching like nobody else has ever taught. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. And so everywhere Jesus goes now, like a big crowd of people are following him around. Not because they're interested in in being a part of what he's doing. They just want to see what he's going to do next, right? It's like, dude, I wonder who else he's going to cast a demon out of. Like, let's let's see what Jesus is going to do today. So in Matthew chapter 5, we see Jesus comes in this place called Capernaum. The Bible says large crowds start to come around him again. And so here's what Jesus does. He takes his true disciples, his true followers, and the Bible says he goes up onto a hillside overlooking this big lake. It's called the Sea of Galilee. And he starts to teach them. He starts to teach them. And this, this sermon that we're going to read from is called the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons um, that, that is believed Jesus ever preached. But here's what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 5, starting in verse 2. It says, He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So over the next several weeks, man, here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through these statements, these blessed statements that Jesus made right here in Matthew 5. We're just going to take one at a time. And tonight we're going to start with that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here's what you need to know before we get there. That word blessed that you just saw repeated nine times in that passage that we just read, it's a Greek word in the original language, makarios, okay? It's M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S. And it literally means happiness. It means blissful. It means fortunate. One of the pastors I like to read after, his name is John MacArthur. Here's how he describes this happiness that Jesus talks about. He says, makarios is the idea of a kind of happiness and a kind of blissfulness and a kind of contentedness and a kind of blessedness that is unaffected by circumstance. It means an inner peace, an inner bliss, an inner happiness, an inward joy that is not produced by circumstance. There it is again. It's not external. It's internal. Or is it affected by circumstance? It is a state of happiness, a state of well-being in which God desires his children to live. 
So, man, if you go back to my question that I started with, is Jesus concerned with our happiness? Like, I think we have to believe he's very concerned with our happiness if he starts off the greatest sermon he ever preached by talking about it. But it's so important for us again tonight and and throughout all of this series to understand what this happiness hangs on. We've got to understand what it's dependent on. We've got to understand what it's a result of. So tonight, here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This very first statement is really interesting. And you're going to find this is going to be the case over the next several weeks. It's almost like Jesus says something really weird. He's like, happy are those. And then he busts with something weird that totally makes no sense on how is that person a happy person. You're going to find out next week when we talk about happy are those who mourn. Like that sounds pretty contradictory, right? Mourning and happiness sound like they're at opposite ends of the spectrum. Well, tonight, if you read this, you start to understand this verse, you kind of start getting the same picture of happiness and what Jesus is describing when he says the poor in spirit. They almost seem at two opposite ends of the spectrum. Here's what Jesus is kind of getting at with this statement. He's telling us that if we want to experience true inward happiness in this life, it starts with us coming to a place where we realize that we are spiritually bankrupt before the Lord. Like this poor in spirit has nothing to do with you and I being materially, financially poor. It doesn't have anything to do with us being poor spirited. You know, the lazy, unenthusiastic for life kind of people that we all love being around. You know, something's always wrong. Like, Jesus isn't talking about those people. He isn't talking about you got to live in a ditch somewhere or, you know, in in a basement of somebody's house and they don't know you're living there. It's not that kind of poor. Jesus is going, listen, this poor I'm talking about, the poor in spirit, it means that you are the opposite of being rich in pride when it comes to a relationship with God. It means that you understand that you can never do anything to save yourselves or to make God love you through your own works or through your own efforts. And and I want to give you one of the greatest pictures of this from the Bible that I could possibly paint for you. And I think this is going to help you kind of get what Jesus is getting at. So um, if you have your Bibles, keep your finger in Matthew 5, flip over to Luke 18. Luke 18. We find Jesus, he's teaching again, he gives us this parable um, that he calls the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, let's read this together, okay? Here's what it says. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And here's what he had to say. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I mean, the guy's in the same room with him, and he's praying, God, thank you I'm not like that guy over there. He goes, man, I fast twice a week, I give of all the t- or I give tithes of all that I get. And then Jesus goes, but the tax collector, standing far off, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In this passage, Jesus describes two very different people. And the first guy he talks about is who? 
You can say it. You can talk in church. It's okay. The first guy he talks about is who? The Pharisee. Now, if you don't know anything about Pharisees, let, let me tell you about the Pharisees. Pharisees were the religious elite of their day, okay? Like, the, the Pharisees, if, if you kind of went back in time and you visited with them, you'd find out some things like this. They followed rules better than anybody else. They were great rule followers. Um, they knew Scripture very, very, very well. You know, they could probably trump anybody in their knowledge of, of Scripture and of the Old Testament. Um, these people morally, when it came to their moral lives, they were the best of the best. I mean, they were the religious elite of their day. They made people, when it came to religion, feel about this big because they were so great at it. And so here again, you got this picture, this Pharisee, you get it. He comes in the presence of the Lord in the temple and he goes, God, look how good I am. Look how amazing I am. He goes, God, I, I just want to pray. I just want to thank you that I'm not like these other people around me in the world today. I'm not like the unjust. I'm not like the adulterer. I'm not like this tax collector guy over here. God, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. I'm a pretty big deal. And you should probably take notice at how good I've been. You see, I mean, this Pharisee is trying to convince God that he deserves the grace and the love and the compassion of God in his life because of what he's done. I mean, he's literally looking at God going, God, you deserve, to, or, or I deserve you to give me everything that I'm at. I deserve your compassion. I deserve your grace. You need to give it to me because I've been a pretty good guy and I'm following all the rules. I think I'm pretty deserving. Now, guys, this kind of attitude... This is what it means to be rich in pride, the opposite of poor in spirit. And this kind of attitude is a big, 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 big problem. And you know what this attitude is grounded in, right? It's grounded in religion. It's grounded in religion. I, I always love when I'm around those people um, and they find out I'm a pastor and they want to like, man, I hate religion. I mean, I love Jesus, but I'm not big on religion. And then I go, bro, me either. Hate it. Religion stinks. Because religion is all about what can I do to make God like me? How good can I be so that God looks at me and goes, well, that's a pretty deserving guy or girl down there. I might as well love him. I might as well give him some grace. You see, religion, all it does is produce a bunch of prideful, arrogant people who don't love God and who don't love other people like Jesus does. And you see, when you spend time reading this book, you start finding out that Christianity is not religion at all. It actually teaches the exact opposite of what religion teaches. The Bible teaches us that because we are sinful people, there's nothing we can do to earn God's love. I mean, it teaches that no matter how good we are, we can't work our way into salvation. It tells us that no matter how many rules we follow, that we cannot make God like us. That's a problem. I was going back and forth on whether or not I was going to tell you this, but I feel like I'm going to tell you this, okay? Not for shock factor because I want you to get it. If you look through the Bible, do you know what the Bible compares good works of ours to? There's a couple of places in the Bible where the Bible uses very graphic language. Go back to the book of Isaiah, and here's what the prophet Isaiah says that our good works are like before the Lord. He says, man, it's, they're, they're like filthy rags, okay? Um, that has been translated into a few things. One of the things it's been translated into is, my good works before the Lord are like leper's rags, that a leper, a person whose skin is rotting off. It's like those, those, uh, those rags that fill with pus, and then he takes them off, and they're absolutely disgusting. And the Isaiah prophet's going, that's kind of what your good works are like when you bring them to the Lord. 
Um, another way it's translated, and again, this is the Bible's language, okay? This is not, don't, don't send me an email about this. I think you can handle it because you're students. The Bible, when it says filthy rags, there are biblical scholars that actually teach that that refers to menstrual cloths. Used menstrual cloths. That my good works and yours are like us bringing a handful of those bad boys in the presence of God and going, God, look how good I've been. Look what I have for you, God. You should love me now. In Philippians 3, Paul says it like this. He says, all of our good works are like a big pile of dung before the Lord. So can you imagine us today walking into the presence of God and going, God, let me give you what I have to make you love me. Here are some old menstrual cloths and a big pile, steaming pile of dung. God, look how awesome I've been. You should love me. The Bible goes, that's what your good works are like in the presence of God. And you see, that's not what Christianity teaches. That's not God, what God wants from you. And it's not what God wants from me. There's another guy in the story. He's a tax collector. If you don't know anything about tax collectors, again, let me describe the tax collectors to you. These guys were hated. They were considered to be thieves. Okay, during this time of Jesus, the Roman Empire was in rule and in control of Israel. And the Romans put heavy taxes on the people that they ruled over so that they could support their empire. And so here's what they would do. They would walk into an area like Israel. They would find people who already lived there, natives, and they would make them collect, collect taxes from their own people. And so here was the agreement. The Romans would go and say, okay, you Israelite, you Jewish person, you go collect taxes for us from your own people, and you take a little bit extra, and that'll be your payment for doing the job. Now, what these tax collectors were known for is abusing that right. And they would go in and they would collect taxes, and then they would take much more than they needed so that they could provide for their lavish lifestyles, and so they're robbing their own people. And their own people hate them for it. The, the tax collectors back in this time, they were rich sinners. Very rich sinners. So, so here's the picture. You get this picture of this guy who is a thief. He's pursuing worldly things. He's trying to find joy and satisfaction in external things. He's hated by his own people. He's doing nothing good with his life. And he comes before the Lord. And the Bible says he's literally beating himself in the chest that he won't even lift his eyes up. He's looking to the ground and he's just crying out, God, forgive me. God, rescue me. God, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. You see, this, this is what it looks like to be poor in spirit. This tax collector puts on display for us what it looks like to be poor in spirit. He recognizes that he was a sinner, that he could do nothing to earn God's love, nothing to earn God's acceptance, and it leaves him begging God to save him. If you go back to that Matthew 5 verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, that word poor in the original language literally means to cower and to cringe like a beggar to cower and cringe like a beggar. I want you to imagine this picture with me. Let, let's say we go to downtown. We're walking the streets of Atlanta and you run into that homeless guy who's sitting on the side of the road and he's begging. And it's not the homeless guy that's joking and laughing and shaking his cup. It's that homeless guy that's balled up on the sidewalk. He won't show his face 
and he has his cup just extended a little bit, and he's just asking in a voice where you can tell this guy's broken, can you spare some change? Will you give me anything? I'm hungry. I don't know if I'm going to eat tonight. You see, it's this picture of this guy who understands that his existence and survival is totally dependent on someone else's gift. And when Jesus says to us that we should be people who are poor in spirit, it's the same recognition yet in a spiritual way. Jesus is saying, blessed are those people that will become like this tax collector. Blessed are the people, happy and joyful are the people that will recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they could never save themselves, nothing to work their way into salvation, nothing to earn God's love by following rules or being good enough. Blessed are the people who will come into the presence of God and cower and cringe like beggars because they understand that apart from Him, their existence is nothingness. Blessed are those people who come into the presence of God and they reach their hand out and they beg him for mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is what Jesus is saying. He says these people will experience true happiness in this life. Now maybe you're thinking to yourself, James, that doesn't sound like a very happy place to me. Maybe you're sitting in your seat going, that actually sounds kind of miserable. Like Jesus is saying, I should be happy because I can't save myself. I should be happy because I can't do enough good things to please God. I can't make him love me. Um, I should be happy because I'm kind of the equivalent of a spiritual homeless guy who has to beg God for my spiritual existence. Like James, that's supposed to make that happy. How in the world is that supposed to make me happy? Well, Well, here's the simple answer. And we find it in the end of this story about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus says that this broken, poor in spirit tax collector goes away justified or accepted by God while the rich in pride Pharisee walks out the door and God doesn't accept him at all. You see, Jesus says that those who humble themselves and admit that they are in need of a savior will be exalted by God. And guys, I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. That's good news to me. And when I hear that, it makes me happy. You see, guys, we've got to remember tonight that the whole reason Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins is because he knew that we could never do anything to save ourselves. If we could, if we could work our way into a relationship with God, there would have been no reason for Jesus to give his life on the cross. He knew that no matter how many rules we followed, no matter how good we tried to be, we could never earn salvation. And you need to know tonight that true happiness in life begins when you fall at the feet of Jesus and you beg him to have mercy on you as a sinner. That's where true happiness and true joy begins in this life. Guys, some of you are so bent on trying to find happiness and satisfaction and joy in so many external things. And guys, will you take it from a guy who's been there? You're going to lead yourself into a place of misery. I mean, try as hard as you want, but at the end of the day, you're going to be miserable. And Jesus is going, all you've got to do is come ask me to save you. 
in recognition that you could never save yourself in recognition that there is this wide gap between you and God, and the only way to get to him is through me. Jesus is going, you want to be happy in life? You want to have joy that you never imagined you would have? Fall at my feet and beg me to have mercy on you. And Jesus goes, the promise for people that will do that is this, is you get the kingdom of heaven. You get the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those people who are like the tax collectors because they get the kingdom of heaven. There are two sides of this promise. And one is this. It means that one day, one day after this life is done, that if you are one of those, those people who have come to that place where you've been broken, poor in spirit, ask God to have mercy on you, to rescue you, to redeem you, to save you. The picture is that when you close your eyes in death, that you are in his presence for the rest of eternity. You get heaven. You see, you, you get to be in that place with Jesus that Revelation 21 describes. When it says, man, the dwelling place of God is going to be with men. He's going to dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. As you want to know why heaven is so sweet? Because Jesus is there because he's there and he is ruling and he is reigning and it is a place that functions exactly how God designed things to work without sin. And Jesus is going, blessed are those who've fallen at my feet and sought mercy because one day after this life is over, that's what they get. But then the other side of the promise is this, and this is where we're going to end. The other side of the promise is is that you not only get to experience his kingdom one day after this life is over, but before you even get there, you get to experience his kingdom here now. You want to know what the kingdom of God truly is? It's just God's ruling and his reigning. That's what the kingdom of God is. And you see, Jesus is going, man, blessed are those who fall at my feet and ask for mercy. Ask me to save them because, man, I'll be their king right now even in this life. Again, let, let me go back to MacArthur. Um, I, I had some good stuff from him this week. So he, here's what he says. He says, do you know what it is to possess the kingdom? He says, it, this is what the word means. We get it. We possess it. You possess the kingdom. It's yours. And he goes, the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ. Do you know what that means? Here's what it means. It says, you're his subject. He takes care of you. He gives you what you need, and he fulfills every need of your heart. Tell me that's not good news. That despite circumstances, despite how much I have or how little I have, despite what way life seems to be going at the present moment, that I have a king whose name is Jesus who wants to be everything to me. And he wants to be everything for me. And he wants to rule in and over my life as not only king of me, but king of the universe. And so, man, I'll see him one day, but before I see him one day, I get to experience him now. Guys, um, if you know him tonight, 
If you're that kid who's come to that place where you have fallen on your feet or on your knees, poor in spirit, recognizing I can't save myself, God, I need you to save me. I hope you find rest and comfort in that promise. Like I hope that when you hear that, you're like me and you go, hold on, shut up. I'm going to see him. I'm going to see Jesus one day. And I'm going to spend eternity in his prayer. The one who died for me, I get to lay my eyes on him and live in his presence and, and in a place where he is ruling and reigning perfectly. No sin, no consequences of sin, no effects of sin. It's gone. I hope you find rest in that. I hope you find rest in knowing that Jesus right now, I think about that and I go, Jesus, you, you want to reign in and through me. Like if I have a need, I can call on you anytime. Like you're my advocate, my defender. You are, you, you love me more than I could ever imagine. You want to be present in every area of my life right now. Like that's just insane. And I hope that if you know him, you find comfort and peace and rest in those truths. For those of you that are here tonight that don't know him. For those of you that are here tonight that have never come to a place in your life where you have been that broken in spirit person, that tax collector person, where you've come into the presence of God and you go, God, I can never save myself. I know it. And God, I, I know that I've messed up. I know I'm not perfect. God, I can't do anything to earn your love. I can't do anything to earn your acceptance. If you've never been to that place where, again, you have been driven to your knees in the presence of God and said, God, would you have mercy on me? Save me. I believe in what Jesus has done for me. I want to give you an opportunity to do that tonight. Some of you guys need to quit trying so hard to be good. God's not interested in that. He's not interested in, in, in just your external actions. He wants your heart. He wants your affections. And you see, you'll become affectionate for the Lord when you truly recognize and understand that he's done something for you you could never do for yourself. That's where affection for Jesus begins, is at this place where you become poor in spirit.